Hey everybody, how's it going? Thanks for joining me. We're going to be continuing our series on Alexander Dugan and his book, uh, The Fourth Political Theory. This is our fourth installment, uh, maybe our penultimate installment here as we uh, will hopefully be able to wrap this up next episode. But with me as always for this series is Michael Millerman. He's a uh, political uh, and philosophical scholar and is the guy who helped to translate this book uh, for Alexander Dugan. So an excellent person to talk to as always on this subject. Michael, thanks for joining me. Good to be with you. Absolutely. So we're going to be picking up where we left off. We're looking at chapters 10, 11, and 12 today. And these are some very interesting chapters. I know you told me that these are some of your favorite chapters and I can definitely understand why they go in some very interesting directions and look at some fascinating topics. So let's go ahead and start with chapter 10, which is the ontology of the future. So Dugan is going to talk a lot about time in this chapter. He's going to tell us a lot about our perceptions of time, how they can be altered, how we need to uh, kind of change the way that we see time. And the first thing he does is challenge kind of the assertion that the present is what we know best. It's kind of the thing closest to hand and the way with uh, which we can kind of understand all other time. Can you talk a little bit about his uh, uh, his understanding of the present and its connection to other periods of time? Sure. So the initial view is that the present is what's most real or what we know most and best, that the past is next degree of reality, so to speak, because you assume that's where actual events happened, real things happened. The past was the past. And the question is, can we really know it the way that it was? But we don't typically doubt that things happened and there could be a correct account of what happened. And that the future is the least well-known because it's the most indeterminate. It's that which hasn't come to pass yet or that which hasn't been yet. So that's a kind of ordinary, common sense, defensible view of the rank between present past and future. And Dugan's task gradually is to cast some doubt over all of that because the present, uh, now here he goes into some philosophers like Kant and he'll discuss Husserl in a minute, but the gist of it is that we have much less access to or understanding of what's going on automatically than we think we have. In fact, we're always time is always exposed to interpretation of what's going on, to the significance of what's going on, to the coherence of what's going on. And it's this theme of meaning, coherence, and significance that he tries to bring to the forefront in order to be able to connect the theme of time with his more general theme of politics and of multipolarity. Because after all, it's not a book just about time. It's a book about the way the dispute over the meaning of time has an effect on how we think about alternatives to modern political ideologies. Yeah, and I think most people would probably be a little surprised to find that to be a focus in a book about political theory. Uh, but I do like the way he kind of explains why this is integral, why you need to understand this if you want to look for new political theories, new avenues and understandings of uh, politics. So the like you said, he reaches for uh, some different illustrations. I think the most striking one is probably Husserl, who I have not read. I'm not read in, but he uses the uh, kind of the analogy of time as music and musical notes to kind of explain the relationship between time and how maybe the present is far more connected and in uh, in dialogue with these moments of time than we understand it. 
Yeah, that's right. So Husserl has a book called Phenomenology of Time and Consciousness, where he examines what it's like when we perceive a melody, for example. So there, if, you, if somebody were to think about their favorite song or lyric or opening riff or something like that, you have the anticipation of expectation of that first note. You already hear it even before it's played, if you're remembering it. And then, you know, go a little bit into the phrase, into the musical phrase, and whatever specific note happens to be playing, there's also the presence of the past notes there together with it. So it's like, where do you draw the line? Where does the, where do the beginning and end of the present start? When you're listening to a piece of music, it's the whole thing together. You know, you have the anticipation of the coming notes, the memory of the notes that were played, and never just the one that's ringing out at the moment all by itself. So this allows us to think about political history, sociological history, about our traditions, about our customs, about the meaning of our both our ancestors on one hand and our future generations on the other. So if there's an attitude towards the coming notes, let's say, that they're completely unrelated to the past ones, well, that's a kind of absolute chaos, you know, even in the controlled chaos of some kind of experimental jazz or other forms of music, there's still a meaningful connection. So Dugan wants to take that experience that Husserl described when he looked at our perception of time and the continuities of past, present and future and use it to help us to think about, as I say, social, political and cultural history. And um, it is, I think, an evocative and helpful way to do that. So even little observations he makes that uh, resonate more than uh, it seems at first when he says, for example, that the past is present in the present. Uh, the present becomes continuous and includes the past as a vanishing presence. It's like the note that rings out. So if we go to our ordinary political opinions and categories and uh, concepts and all of that, there's a kind of progressivism that tries to break with the past. It doesn't hear the resonance of the ancestral or the traditional in the present, or it tries to turn away from it completely. Um, and that music analogy helps us with genres, with styles, maybe even with remixes, with all kinds of different creative interpretations to think about that continuity in new ways. Yeah, and uh, I really like the way that he phrased kind of the future as the death of the present, where you're always kind of just living on the edge of that experience and and in fully understanding your present is also understanding that kind of the present is dying uh, as, as it goes along into the future. But uh, another thing that he, I think he takes from Husserl, though I'm not exactly sure, so maybe you can clarify that, but uh, he talks about kind of the short circuit of consciousness and how time is necessary to uh, have the consciousness kind of avoid observing itself, that if it was to kind of truly do that, it would kind of put itself into a, a shocking state. And so in many ways, time is necessary as a way to escape this experience, keep the consciousness from going through this. Yeah, so here... Um, I don't know how much liberty he's taking with the interpretation of Husserl here. I can't remember mm -hmm. Husserl formulating it in quite that way. But the the insight is, for Dugan, a very important one, the way that he develops it. So as you said, the idea is that we escape into time. Time is a release valve. And if we don't have temporality or time to escape into, we're stuck with this strange moment of consciousness, the self-referential short circuit of consciousness, which creates all kinds of uh, dualities and difficulties and obstacles. It kind of like, 
um, I was going to say something about the movie Memento, but I don't want to do any spoiler alerts. So let's no, just you're put fine. It this way. I, I love that movie. <laughs> Go ahead and make your uh, connection. Okay. So the, the idea that we have to create an illusion for ourselves that gives us a purpose to go on or that gives us, you know, a world to live into. Because once you've seen the Nate, once you've sort of perceived the nature of self-consciousness, self-referentiality, the game is over in a way. So you have to reconstitute a new temporality to keep yourself engaged and involved. Um, so hopefully people who haven't seen the movie see it. Um, but that's a side point. So the crucial thing is this. Why does Dugan care some, in some sense fundamentally about these questions? Because you had in the 90s, and still to a certain extent, the whole theme of the end of history. The end of history means that time has come to an end. So you have all kinds of issues here. What was time that it could, in principle, come to an end? What does it mean for the human being who is in time and who's fundamentally temporal and historical and musical in this analogy? What does it mean for the music to have stopped? And as he says later in this chapter, not to run too far ahead, but how is it possible for the human being to commit chronocide, to end time, to put a stop to the very dimension in which we live and move and have our being? So the idea that we flee some basic dimension, deep, dark and fundamental dimension of ourselves, we flee it out into temporality. Dugan is very interested in reconstructing both our fleeing, also what we flee into, but also this idea of a radical subject. What is that part of ourselves that is outside of time? And that is where he goes beyond, way beyond Husserl because Husserl didn't go there. And Dugan goes into a set of other authors and other reflections, and he develops this theme of the radical subject uh, in other books and lectures here only alluding to it. But yeah, it's a very beautiful and strange coalescence of two seemingly totally distinct domains of inquiry, consciousness and time on one hand, politics and history on the other. And yet they're so tightly interlinked here. That's why I love this chapter. So he then kind of goes into some different organizations of time. He talks about uh, different understandings, you know, uh, circular time, regressive time, uh, the different perpetual states, uh, material time. Could you lay out a little bit? I mean, obviously, there's a lot there, but kind of a little bit of those different uh, understandings of time. Sure. So he says, for example, about circular time, that uh, the the power of the trauma of self-consciousness uh, banishes that trauma to the periphery where it becomes circular time. So you have the eternal return of the same. You have the idea of a rise, of a fall, of a decay, of a rebirth, a renaissance, all of those kinds of things. That's one way of Get keeping the cycle going, uh, keeping a cycle going, but without any fundamental changes. So there are people, I'm sure, who listen to you, who listen to me, who read Dugan or who are interested in traditionalism and all of that, for whom cycles, the circularity of time is probably the key reference point. But another one is that the time is regress. And as he puts it here, the experience of the short circuit is placed in the past. In other words, the, the temporal Big Bang is in the past. And we're always trying to recapture that moment, but we're further and further away from it. The music is decaying, fading. We forget it. You know, we're left with just very poor reception of it. So um, messianic time puts the Big Bang, as it were, in the future. Uh, the uh, abolition of time, the fulfillment of history. So these are all different models about whether we are primarily looking to replay the whole thing, eternal recurrence of the same 
whether we're looking to recapture it by going back, that's the kind of uh, traditional time, time as fall, so that the goal there is return, or whether we have a messianism. And the messianism can be constituted in different ways as well, depending on what you see as uh, the key criterion for the fulfillment of the meaning of history. But what what all of these structure, what he does in identifying these structures of time, including material time, whereas he puts it here, um, time is introduced into the substance of the physical world. So you no longer see either time as far in the past or time as in the future or time as cyclical, but time is sort of like the, it's built into the objectivity of the world around you in its own way. The reason he can do this catalog is because we therefore no longer just take for granted our everyday notion of time. Everybody has something like an everyday notion of time that it's flowing and we're in that flow more or less. Everybody knows that somehow it depends on our perception because it can seem to pass quickly or it can seem to pass slowly. But still, once we begin to delineate different constructions of time, then you have something you can analyze philosophically and uh, phenomenologically. So that plurality of times is very important for him. Well, guys, it's very clear that Joe Biden is going through this cognitive decline, that his age is catching up with him, that he's losing that step. And you don't want that to happen to you. You got to take care of yourself so you're not in that position, which is why we need to talk about today's sponsor. And we need to discuss the pressing issue of the FDA attempting to control a powerful health supplement known as NMN. This controversy surrounding NMN highlights how certain forces seek to manipulate the market and limit consumer access to beneficial products. And with the sale of NMN possibly coming to an abrupt halt at any time now, it's critical to act quickly. The reality is that centralized control over health products can lead to a lack of choice and innovation for consumers. And the FDA's actions to potentially reclassify NMN as a drug instead of a supplement only serves the interests of big pharmaceutical companies while leaving consumers out in the cold. The FDA is attempting to change the status of NMN supplements to be classified as a drug, which would allow pharmaceutical companies to control it. This move is not based on the efficacy or safety of NMN, but is aimed at cornering the market and taking the supplement away from you, the consumer. And with the sale of NMN potentially stopping at any moment, now is the time to secure your supply. NMN, or nicotinamide mononucleotide, is a precursor to NAD+, which has been shown to provide numerous health benefits, such as improved energy, weight management, endurance, strength, and even anti-aging. By potentially reclassifying NMN as a drug, the FDA is restricting access to a supplement that could significantly improve people's lives. Despite the controversy, you still have an opportunity to take advantage of Black Forest NMN supplement, I just got this in guys and I'm really looking forward to taking it daily and enjoying that boost in energy levels, mental clarity, and overall well-being. Everybody says once you start taking this supplement, you'll wonder how you ever managed without it. With the sale of NMN potentially coming to an end due to the FDA's actions, now is the time to act. Black Force MNN is available for purchase and you can even get a 10% discount using the code ORIN at blackforcesupplements.com Orin. Stand up for your right to access beneficial healthcare products and fight back against those who seek to limit our choices. Be sure to check the pinned comment and description for the link and discount code I mentioned in this video. Yeah, and this is what then kind of uh, he, where he starts connecting it to kind of the political project, right? He 
he once again enters kind of the theme of multipolarity and uh, avoiding kind of uh, a general imperialism when it comes to time. He talks about how there is no shared history of humanity. There can only be histories of individual civilizations or individual groups. You can't have one overarching understanding of that. And to try to kind of force everyone into the same story into the same shared history, into the same shared understanding of time is, again, something he uh, he uh, uses Western racism, uh, which which I'm not a fan of his ex- expansion of that term. But we understand what he means by this. The the general understanding that everyone needs to conform. Everyone only fits in this Western understanding of history. Everyone only understands time in this one way. And it has to be universalized across the entire globe, globe across all civilizations and peoples. Um, that he says that this is a kind of a destruction, um, uh, a form of bigotry, a form of uh, imperialism that kind of keeps uh, the different civilizations from experiencing reality the way that they kind of need to. Yeah, and the musical analogy fits in a way, and he does mention it because the music analogy would be that uh, global, um, you know, monoculture or a single history for humanity would mean that everybody's playing the same song or that everything can be subsumed under the same genre. And that's not true in music. In music, you have obviously many instruments, genres, tempos, and so on. And the idea here is that that's true as well of people's histories, civilizations' histories, and states' histories. And so we'd have to we'd have to think about that because implied in the view of globalism, it is true that there is a single let's say, a unit, humanity, and that it can march to a single tune, as it were. And depending on whether you think that history comes to an end or not, that, you know, there's a crescendo and then the music stops. And it's not obvious why um, why we should think that, either on the basis of the study of consciousness or on the basis of the phenomenology of time or on some other more narrowly political or social basis. Uh, Obviously, if you think that the standard of judgment is the three and a half minute pop song or the, you know, four minute super repetitive uh, hip hop song, or if you think that it's a piece of classical music or something like that. But he says you have to get the richness. The field of music, like the field of politics, is much richer than can be encapsulated by a single uh, dominant paradigm. And so here also he says something which I thought was very interesting, that these different concepts of time, these different uh, histories are so deep that they kind of protect each society from globalization in a way. They they protect no civilization can truly understand another civilization's time and history in the same way. And that these things are so deeply ingrained that even when they seem like they've been eradicated by imperialism or globalism, they're still there, kind of deeply seated in the in kind of the metaphysical understanding the subconscious or whatever you want to call it of the of kind of the peoples and so that kind of protects their identity from being completely subsumed by this kind of globalizing force yeah it is a key point for dugan that there's always something preserved even if it's suppressed and even if it's uh, hidden there's always something unique about the peoples or the civilizations that is preserved up until the irreversible destruction of human essence or human consciousness and then you have post-society post-humanity and you have a completely different picture that's where he doesn't want to go that's like the worst possible scenario and the worst alternative although he does think about it too so it's not just like let's say every society uh i'll give you an example when he discusses 
communism in Russia, he says that it, even though it was a modern European ideology, it acquired the characteristics of, Rus of Russian messianism, of Russian archaism, of Russian mythology. It became a very mythologized expression of what was a Western scientific, uh, political scientific construct. And that's because it overlapped with the deep roots of the Russian soul, so to speak. And so here too, you can try to take um, Western pop song or something like that, put it in some other context, but it's going to get reinterpreted according to the taste and according to the uh, ear and according to the mode and style of that people, even if its identity has otherwise been eradicated up until that final remnant itself is destroyed. That's what's at stake for him in all of this. Uh, whether the final remnant is preserved or destroyed. Yeah, and this again echoes uh, someone who I'm more familiar with, which is Spangler. And Spangler kind of talks about how you know Christianity has its uh, origins in kind of the Middle East and the Magian soul, the Magian man. But then it, uh, you know, when it moves to the Faustian man, it's the same religion in theory, but in practice, it takes on a Faustian character and it, it fundamentally transforms once it's experienced by different people even though it's you know in, thought of as the same religion. So this is, again, something that I think is reflected in multiple other thinkers and is uh, something that many have kind of observed uh, across kind of different domains. Uh, but the, the next interesting thing that I think he talks about is kind of how uh, the end of history is the end of the future. And if we have the end of the future, then there's no place for the consciousness to kind of escape to to avoid that self-referential moment. And so instead, we start seeing the creation of new escapes, things like uh, virtuality, uh, you know, the, the virtual world, and other things that allow the postmodern uh, world allows uh, the consciousness to escape in places that are no longer time because time, the, the future is no longer there because history has ended. Uh, and so that's very interesting because I think it then uh, leads us to again, observations that are present in things like neo-reaction and accelerationism, uh, where a lot of, many of these things have been uh, moved into different realms, uh, different fundamental needs and human experiences go into something that is kind of no longer human in a way to kind of uh, recreate things that have ended due, due to this end of history process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so... Um, maybe the neo-reactionaries, I don't know as well as you do, discuss it, but for sure there are examples like uh, Schmidt, Kojev, Strauss, and the authors that I know a little bit better on my end. So for example, uh, Schmidt, when he talks about the end of the political, so the end of the friend-enemy distinction, the idea that we're going to overcome opposition, overcome war, neutralization, depoliticization, and so on, he says that there you can imagine if man no longer has anything to live or to die for, any serious existential commitment, then life will go on, but it will be a life of uh, his derisive term is entertainment. So it'll be action deprived of real significance. It's another way of putting virtuality, action deprived of real significance. And uh, Kojev also had to discuss on the base of Hegel, what happens when man who is a fighting and working being no longer has to fight or work because we've reached the stage of universal recognition, universal mutual recognition. And there too, there was the idea that it's not like our activity stops, but our activity stops being properly human. It starts being something else. Or as Dugan puts it, I think earlier in the fourth political theory, there are still markets, you know, there's still TV shows, there's still stuff happening, but it all has the flicker of light with the lack of uh, meaning or significance. So there's a real concern that if it's, you know, if man is fundamentally 
historical, temporal, or musical, what happens to man when the music stops? This virtual escape is one option. And it's probably one that I think we can see if we look around and it looks like people are creating for themselves, you know, second, third, fourth removed from reality uh, domains in which to play and spin their wheels and continue the appearance of a meaningful human life, uh, which seems to be deprived of all real substance. But the more significant question that Dugan asks in this context, as you saw uh, right towards the end of the chapter is, how is it, what does it tell us about ourselves that there can be an eradication of time? Because this is very important. He says, nobody can eradicate time for us. Somehow every human existence ultimately makes the choice for itself at the end, whether it is to abolish time and institute virtuality or abolish both time and virtuality. And that for him, he says very little about it in this chapter, but he indicates it as a theme. You know, he indicates it as a theme. So if we said, fine, time is no longer the sandbox that we're playing and we've moved into virtuality. And then at some point, you know, to invoke an earlier phrase from the book, the gloomy end of the show of virtuality also comes and people are sick of the fake double, uh, doubled life. Then what are you left with when you're deprived both of the escape valve and of the pseudo escape valve, then you're sort of left with this. Uh, maybe people have this experience who go to like a sensory deprivation tank or go find themselves in the mountains somewhere. Once their thoughts stop, they encounter the brutal bare presence of their uh, naked conscious selves, you know, uh, and then what there's a kind of horror, a kind of terror, but also a kind of new realm that's disclosed. And uh, for Dugan, we have to consider not only the possibility that history continues, not only the possibility that virtuality continues, but also this realm where you're faced with that brutal, uh, bare self-encounter. And uh, I guess that kind of wraps up the radical subject. Is there is there any more you wanted to say on that idea? I know you said that there's a whole another bo you know, book or you know, exploration of this in other books, but is there anything yeah, so else on it's that? Very, it is a crucial theme for him because he'll he'll mention it again in a subsequent chapter of this book so you can see that it's on his mind besides the fact as i said that he has other books on it and so on but i think that when the people like me and you who are trying to understand you know public intellectuals cultural commentators that whole realm right people who are reading serious books and looking at politics and trying to understand it there's always, you know, the sense we have some figures to work with, like Nietzsche's last man. Everybody has some sense of Nietzsche's last man. Nietzsche's Ubermensch or Superman as a kind of, you know, right wing anti-liberal figure or other kind of uh, reference points, you know, where you can see, aha, uh -huh, here's the will to power coming through or here's something much more degraded coming through. It would be worth at some point gradually. It's not going to happen immediately, but gradually getting a sense of this alternative the radical subject as one of the figures that can help us to understand the future, our pol political future, our political present, our political past, um, just like Heidegger, just like Dugan has introduced Heidegger into the equation in a big way, probably more so than anybody else uh, has done, at least in the right wing circles. So we're going to have to think it together with the radical subject. But that's a project for uh, not today and not tomorrow. But people should be aware that it's on the horizon. Gotcha. All right, so our next chapter here is the new political anthropology. Um, and he kind of starts this off by making a statement that would shock some people. I think we will probably be a little more familiar with this idea. But 
the idea that political sy systems are what shapes men's identity, what creates identity, the kind of system you're born into kind of defines your understanding and relationship with the state, with violence, with the way that your community uh, negotiates problems, your duties and responsibilities in all of these things. And he kind of talks about the, uh, the importance of understanding that the kind of the shift in political mode between maybe traditional, modern, and postmodern times uh, kind of fundamentally changes the way that human beings understand identity and the way they see themselves in the world. Yeah, so the first idea of the political concept of man, it's an old idea, restated here, an Aristotelian idea to a certain extent, or even Plato's from the Republic, that how we conceive of man is relative to the regime type, for example. So I have uh, friends and family who grew up in the Soviet Union, and the Soviet man was a different type of man than the Western man, let's say. Uh, Canadian man and American man, also not necessarily the same, you know, European man and so on. So somehow when you grow up under a specific kind of regime, you imbue a lot of the characteristics of that regime and that become a defining characteristics of the kind of human that you are. Now, even Rousseau says, okay, fine. In some sense, we're all human beings, but really for all intents and purposes, you're a human being molded, shaped and stamped by your political community. So that's the first notion, the political concept of man. But then he also says there's the concept of the political man, which is this. So the regime leaves its mark on the kind of man you are. But then within that, there are also some people who see themselves as political, as active, as engaged, you know, as expressing the specific civic virtues of the man who's been configured by that regime type. So Dugan is introducing all of this and saying that, yeah, in pre-modernity and in modernity, man has been stamped by his regime type. The problem, though, if you remember the introduction to fourth political theory, the victory of liberalism meant somehow the end of the field of the political. So what happens to political anthropology when the field of the political has apparently collapsed? Yeah, and that's what I was going to get to next year. He then kind of goes into... We, you know what Schmidt talks about when it comes to liberalism and the the once we try to avoid the political, we try to uh, dismiss the political with liberalism. And so, if there is no, you know, if there is a, if your entire political uh, framework is the denial of politics itself, then you end up in a very weird situation as you're trying to grasp at identity and understanding. He talks a lot about kind of how um, the subject and the authority kind of become equal they, they, there's no longer a distinction between those things i've heard other people call this the politics of the swarm which i think is kind of a helpful way to understand this where uh there is no more hierarchy there is no more uh understanding of where power comes from where your position sits inside society how to understand yourself in relation to these different hierarchical structures everything uh power is is everywhere and nowhere all at once it's always located both inside and outside and so it makes it very difficult for people to then kind of uh grasp where they sit and and understand themselves in context uh, yes so that's a totally different situation than has been the situation before Dugan tries to understand what could it possibly mean for political anthropology because there seems like it doesn't leave you with a clear-cut notion of what the man is under some particular regime. 
or of what even political act activity looks like. This swarm figure, the micro-politicized, uh, trans, uh, sub-individual sub and trans-individual, the chaotic self and all of that. So yeah, he gives a description or account of it and tries to say that it has complicated the situation for sure, has made the scene much more chaotic. But he says, this is important for him. He says, even though it seems like it's involved in the abolition of the political, of the field of the political or something like that, in fact, it's clearly a political project. It's clearly uh, can be analyzed in that way. Just like for Schmidt, you know, when liberals invoke humanity, it doesn't mean they're humanitarian. It just means they're being very crafty and no less political than their enemies in doing so. So what Dugan can therefore do is he can say, let's enrich the scope of the political. We had the pre-modern and modern alternatives with their notion of political anthropology. Then we have the apparently non-political swarm of post-modernity. But once we see that it's also political, we combine it with the pre-modern and modern, and now we have the notion of the absolute political. And the key, if I can just take a step ahead here, the key question for him, I also think, by the way, this is still highly relevant in debates about um, the, the, the right way to respond to wokeism and what the alternative would look like and so on. So the kind of situation is this. In order to deal with the swarm type Politic, political anthropology of postmodernity, is it enough to just reassert and reaffirm a modern political anthropology? So in the face of the kind of post-human or even anti-human or transhuman uh, postmodern alternative, we're going to reassert some figure from political modernity. Uh, as I think should be clear by now, Dugan is not content in any way to return to political modernity. And that means even to return to the figures of its political anthropology. No going back, only somehow going forward. So the postmodern, swarm-like, weird, chaotic, circus clown uh, figure, it is opposed by, he says, the response to the post-human is not going to be the human. Because to respond to the post-human with the human is to go back to political modernity. We need some other alternative. These are the parts of Dugan that I think are probably the weirdest for yeah, ordinary Anglo-conservatives, right? Yeah. It's like, uh, what could that possibly mean? What are you talking about? And this is where Dugan also shows himself as most postmodern, you know, and therefore anybody who has an antipathy to postmodernity as such is going to have a, some difficulty with these notions. But yeah, no going back to the modern alternatives. And that means what are we left with? And here, by the way, um, I said at the end of the last chapter that radical subject is important for him. Radical subject is not the same as a character from political modernity because we're dealing with the or root origin of consciousnesses, you know, fleeing itself, so to speak. So radical subject is like one of the places Dugan would look for an alternative to the postmodern circus show. But it's clearly not the same as just going back to good old fashioned 1990s uh, neoconservatism or whatever some people um, are trying to resurrect. Yeah, I mean, he even says that there's no real adherence to the modern political theories in postmodernity. All of that is kind of itself an echo or a clown show that no one's really, it, they, like you said, there's no going back to that. There's no connection to that. There's no bridge back to, to kind of where you were. Yeah, that's an important point because um, I and other people sometimes, uh, you know, mock or uh, analyze 
the woke side of the equation as where the circus is happening. But it's very much the case for him that the neo-communism, neo-fascism, neoliberalism, they're all one clown show because the political modernity is over. And so everything that we see that reflects political modernity today is a uh, simulacrum and uh, not serious. So interestingly, and I, I kind of found this interesting because I, uh, along with Schmidt, I really like Joseph de Maistre, who I think was a, is a big kind of, I, th I think in a lot of ways Schmidt is kind of a secularization of Joseph de Maistre. And so he kind of talks about the, the, the crossing the boundary of Schmidt's political theology um, and that we're kind of in a, we're in a new place. I guess this is because, and we'll get into this in more detail in a moment, but I guess this is because we're introducing perhaps uh, non-human entities into, uh, or post-human entities kind of into politics, and this is where we're at. Could, what do you think he's kind of uh, talking about here when he talks about uh, kind of crossing the boundary of Schmidt's political theology? Okay, so... First of all, he doesn't elaborate at great length, so some of this is speculative. Okay, I will say uh, some connections that may be helpful, but he says that we cannot speak about political theology because somehow the field of theology and the field of the political are both in this new state. You know, political theology is not as postmodern as we are. It's more like a modern construction to a certain extent for Dugan. So the, as he puts it, you can't have an appeal to a telos in quite the same way under the new circumstances as you could have under the earlier circumstances before there was a crisis of direction, a crisis of legitimacy, crisis of rationality, and so on. So he suggests this um, angel politics, angel politics, uh, political angelology. I want to just say a couple of things about it quickly. So the first one is that it might seem like a very... Um, a phrase that I like, mystical political theology. So you might think political angelology is a kind of mystical political theology, putting mysticism back on the table. But what Dugan says is that it is um, not mystical. He says it must be considered as a metaphor which is both scientific and rational. He says that it's not meant to be, um, it's quote, devoid of mysticism and esotericism. So in other words, he does mean it in a way that is conceptually rigorous and not just um, completely indeterminate. So that forces upon us the challenge of understanding it conceptually. I'll say here's one helpful connection, especially for people who are like pursuing some of the threads. Dugan has at times suggested that you can use the language of the angel, like the figure of the angel and the tools of angelology as a way to interpret Dasein. So it's like a translation. Dasein equals angel. And therefore angelology is similar to just expressed in a different language, what it would mean to think in terms of Heideggerian categories or concepts or Heidegger's existential analysis. Because for Heidegger also, people who get into him and who learn to read him, they see what Heidegger talks about when he talks about the human being, it's not what we usually take ourselves to be. Because we usually take ourselves to be like our bodily selves or our material selves or psychological selves or something, but Heidegger gives a totally different kind of interpretation. So Dugan at times uses this translation that Dasein is like talking about our angel or ourselves as angel, you know, or the angel of our authentic existence or even the angel of peoples. So there's a kind of, that's one sort of link between Heidegger and the figure of the angel. Another, and this it gets be, beneath the one that I just mentioned, there is a scholar who is the first person to translate a, a fragments of Heidegger into French. His name is Henri Corbin, C-O-R-B-I-N. 
He was also a scholar of Islamic mysticism. So he wrote about the figure of the angel. So he's a French Heideggerian who wrote about angelology and the figure of the angel, the battle for our angel. And he's very important for Dugan because he also shows us how you can take the language of Heidegger and use it to do multipolar uh, political philosophy. See, through Heidegger, you can suddenly start talking about Iranian mysticism. Through Heidegger, you can suddenly start talking about some other kind of religious eschatological viewpoint and so on. So this whole field of angelopolis or angelic uh, political angel angelology, I would say it's like a poetic or mythical uh, expression of what he means by Heideggerian political philosophy. That would be my thesis. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, I was trying to grasp that because he kind of mentions other actors as well, non-human actors, but he, for instance, gives the example of a, a text message sending the man. So, the, you know, the man doesn't send the text message. The, the text message animates the actions of the man. And at some point, you, uh, I, took the, I took that to mean you could have, you know, technology or, um, you know, forces we don't understand in technology driving political action in a non-human way. Um, so yeah, I, that, I, I think, yeah, that's in play as well, because the whole analysis of technology as destiny, technology as fate, technological interpretation of the world, the technological capture of the human essence, that's all fair game under the theme of Heideggerian political philosophy, because Heidegger writes about technology, its significance for human existence and human history. So you could have, as I say, it's a rich, one of the things Dugan likes to do is sort of sketch out a rich possible semantic field and then leave it for further exploration. So this would be something he does here. I'll make one extra connection again, just for those who want to know the sources because they're not so easy to track down uh, without a quick word of guidance. So there's a book in English called Heidegger in Russia and Eastern Europe. And there's a chapter in that book by Dugan that I translated. And it also does some analysis of the figure of the angel in relationship to Heidegger. So that's like another English uh, source. But yeah, all of these processes, the whole realm of destiny, fate, of man's being captured by something other than man. And it, angelology implies also demonology and implies also the whole celestial hierarchy. And uh, you're in the realm there of uh, exciting, strange, but useful analysis uh, of a kind of poetic type. Yeah, yeah. No, that's definitely where you're at. Um, all right. So... Our next uh, chapter, the final one we're going to focus on today, is uh, kind of the fourth political theory in practice. Uh, so he goes into a good bit of detail here, and I'll, I'll kind of let you lead this discussion as how much you think, because there's a lot of uh, Heidegger and, and Dasein and, and everything in here. So you'll, you'll know better kind of where to go with some of this. But he talks about how the fourth political theory has to be one of action, it has to be embodied in the doing. Uh, and so uh, in order to do that, he kind of brings in Heidegger, his understanding of Dasein, and talks about the need for kind of the subject and object duality to kind of be collapsed, that we, we need to kind of go to a time before theory and practice were separated and understand, you know, this kind of political theory as uh, you know, your action and your, your action and your theory are not completely separate things. You don't formulate the theory and uh, completely separate from the action and then follow it step by step or something like that, that these things are more closely intertwined and informing each other. Yeah, that's right. So first he sets it out that, you know, you have a book called the fourth political theory, you have an idea called the fourth political theory. It does raise the question, how is this theory to be implemented? 
And that kind of question suggests this division between theory, practice, or as he also puts it in that table, uh, principle, manifestation, mentality, activity, idea, realization, thinking, action. So the sort of like purely conceptual and then the um, active version of it. But he says, okay, that's a fair question. What would fourth political practice look like? And we can sort of play around with it in those terms, in terms of a radical division between theory and practice. But he says, because he follows Heidegger, that's not the way that he wants to do it, since Heidegger is interested in the root, as it were, that precedes the split or division between these two columns. Now, here is where I think it's a very helpful observation he makes. We, even without any Heidegger, and even without any Dugan, have some familiarity with the idea of a blurring between the distinction, a blurring of the distinction between theory and practice or between, you know, uh, the idea and the object or whatever. And our exposure to it is through the postmodern blurring of categories. The postmodern blurring of categories, which seeks to, as it were, deconstruct or transcend or break through the small box and show that everything is intertwined and interconnected in these more complicated ways. And Dugan actually thinks that that is a step in the right direction. So if a rigid distinction between theory and practice is a relic of the old history of philosophy, and going to the root, let's say, is a reflection of the new history of philosophy that he's trying to inaugurate and that his fourth political theory is a part of. So postmodernism is closer to that. But this is very helpful in my view. And I think we can see it even with things like transgenderism. The idea is that the postmodern leftist approach to blurring these boundaries is horizontal. It blurs them on the horizontal surface. You know, the colors run together. And in this sense, you preserve the fact that the human transcends, for example, his or her gender. But how is that reflected in the left postmodernism? By a sort of transgenderism. You know, you move from this one to that one, or you play with your gender in this fluid type of way. Whereas for Dugan, that constitutes a parody of man's true, deep, vertical self-transcendence. So I think you could say postmodernism, wokeism, and so on, is a kind of horizontal transcendence. You're jumping out of one set of categories, blurring them, but never moving up or down. Just changing where you fell horizontally. And the crucial breakthrough in the shift to Heidegger, the crucial breakthrough in the shift to Dasein, and for Dugan, the whole alternative represented by the fourth political theory as a kind of right-wing postmodernism is that it keeps the transcendent gesture, it overcomes the categories of modernity, but it does so not in a flattening, horizontal, chaotic left way, but in one that really preserves vertical dimension. And then another interesting uh, point, I mean, for people who like this kind of thing, once you've introduced a vertical dimension, you have a question. Fine, you're getting outside of theory and practice uh, horizontally. You're going to go on the vertical axis. But why do you go to the roots? Why don't you go to the top? Why do you go down? Why is it about hitting the ground or getting to the foundations? Why is the whole topography about going below? Why don't you go up into the suprasensible, into the realm of divinity and so on? Which incidentally, the talk of angelology might have made us expect. Um, so here he says... We have to get to the roots because the branches or the heights are constructed on the basis of the roots. So this is also a very Heideggerian theme. Heidegger said, unless we raise the question, what do we mean by being, which for him is the foundational question, 
any other self-interpretation is going to be distorted. It's going to be free-floating. There's going to be a big gap. So if you say, oh, these postmodern leftists, they think that we're all about race, gender, but I think that we're about soul and spirit. So Heidegger would come back and say, yeah, but you've left soul and spirit as unclarified as they leave race and gender. You've just invoked a new set of notions, but without any understanding of their ontological provenance or justification. So before we have, whether it's a divine construct or whether it's a, you know, some other kind of construct, both Heidegger and Dugan say we need to understand the foundations. The foundations are always going to be deeper than the divisions, and they're always going to be existential. So the existential answer to the question of a fourth political practice is that to think, to speak, to question, to engage, to search, to write is already intermingling, total intermeshing of a magical thinking, a practical uh, intel intelligence. The, the world hasn't been split yet into just merely thinking and merely doing. It's a theurgy, as he suggests. Uh, and again, I think a lot of ordinary conservative types would find this to be sort of like uh, too, too postmodern or something. Mm -hmm. But, you know, how far can we go with Paul Ryan, Bill Crystal, 1990s conservatism? Or isn't it time to take a step into other possible ways of thinking these questions through? So that would be Dugan's uh, model here. Yeah, I thought it was very interesting. You know, he, like you said, he takes a step towards the postmodern, uh, but he is definitely attacking leftist postmodernism here. He directly attacks Deleuze multiple times, saying, mm -hmm. you know, the body without organs, the rhizome, these are, these are not useful. They don't work because they don't allow for the vertical, like you said, they don't allow to this, you know, connection. Um, and that kind of makes them uh, dangerous. He, he, in many ways, as we've kind of talked about, he kind of mentioned previously in other chapters, this is postmodernism is for him a way, a opportunity to re-enchant the world um, and to kind of connect, uh, like you said, the roots to the to these higher concepts once again. Yeah. So he says about Deleuze, by the way, he does always say nice things as well about Deleuze. He sure, refers sure, to sure. his fold and his book. But here he says we can say Deleuze's rhizome is a postmodern and post-structural mockery of Heidegger's Dasein. They're alike and they're described often in the same terms, but they solve the problem differently, horizontal versus vertical. Or as he also puts it, we can use the thesis that homo integros, meaning the complete integral man, consists of homo sapiens, uh, wise man, and homo demens, demented or crazy man. And that Deleuze says free homo demens. You know, you, you solve, you, you have to liberate our insanity, liberate our craziness, liberate our schizophrenia, uh, our chaotic side, and so on. And that, the alternative to that is the integrated man. So we're not just trying to liberate the um, schizophrenic or crazy side of our nature. That's sort of the left postmodern project. Dugan's project is integral man. And maybe in some sense, political angelology or the figure of the angel is another way of stating the integral man. Because um, integral man is man who's exposed, obviously, as well to the realm of the divine and the holy. Uh, and therefore, to talk of, about angels would be appropriate. So... Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely strange, but just to reiterate the point, the main problem, as he puts it, of postmodernity is its elimination of any vertical orientation in terms of both height and depth. Although he, at one point, he has a nice model, I like it anyways, um, where he does say postmodern has some vertical. Here's how he puts it: He said the premodern world 
was like uh, the world egg. Okay, the pre-modern world was open at the top to the energies of the divine and the holy. Then the modern world was closed at the top and at the bottom. So it shut off the holy energies, it shut off the infernal energies, and it tried to become like an isolated world of human construction. And post-modernity is closed at the top, it's closed to God, but it's open at the bottom. It's open to Satan and his minions, but it's closed to God and his host of angels. So there is something demonic and infernal about post-modernity, and that's sort of the liberation of the demented self, uh, which, as you can see, it's just not the game that he wants to play, but it does contain a truth in it, a truth that modernity itself is not enough. Right. And the last paragraph in this uh, this chapter is particularly interesting and probably will sound some alarm bells for those who are uh, skeptical of Dugan. Uh, but he talks about kind of the fourth political theory is eschatology here. Um, and it kind of talks about how, uh, you know, Judgment Day won't bring itself and we have to bring it, um, you know, uh, it's, it's a very interesting thing to kind of put at the end of the this chapter about the fourth political theory in practice um i understand some of this might not be clear or might be left to interpretation but uh, what do you think he's he's doing here connecting the fourth political theory to basically the end of days well yeah you could say the fourth the fourth political practice is uh, to, to end the world okay but what does the end of the world mean? What does the end of days mean? We've just had a section on the ontology of the future. We've just had a thing on the phenomenology of time. We've had all of these invocations of Heidegger. So in my view, it's impossible to interpret this in any way as meaning or implying the physical annihilation of the objective world. You know, he's not saying fourth political practice means let's take a bunch of nuclear bombs and uh, blow up planet Earth so that human life can no longer live here. World is a technical term in Heidegger's philosophy. It's a term that refers to the way, as it were, we interpret what we encounter, the meaning that things have for us. It's not about physical annihilation. It is, though, about the annihilation of the categories of interpretation, of the concepts that are shaping our reality. And you see the whole book so far, if Dugan's main aim was physical destruction and annihilation, this would be a manual on like how to make a bomb and how to go blow up a building or something like that. It wouldn't be a book about Deleuze and Heidegger and Husserl and so on. There would be no need for all of that. But the fact that he's dealing with that tells you what he's concerned with is the world of our, the world of meaning and significance for us, the world that we make sense of. So the modern world means the world configured by the philosophies of modernity. And when we say the pre-modern world is different from the modern world, we mean it's different in the way that it interprets man, God, and so on. And the difference of interpretation results in a completely differently lived life. That's true. So he wants to put an end, fourth political theory wants to put an end to the world of liberalism, of post-liberalism, of wokeism, of globalism, not, in my opinion, directly through physical annihilation, but rather through this philosophical sense. Although, to be totally uh, transparent and frank, it's equally clear for Dugan that in order to oppose the interpretations and the semantics and all of that, you clearly do have a political corollary to that. So it might mean, like let's say the war, Russia's war in Ukraine is for him in part a war over the meaning of the world order. So it's not like it's a purely intellectual endeavor because we just saw fourth political theory and fourth political practice they don't separate fully 
what it means to be purely theoretical. So in other words, there is a military dimension, there's a political dimension, but to say that he's interested in the end of days or the end of the world clearly does not mean uh, total global nuclear annihilation. Uh, in fact, we've seen throughout the book that his whole point is there must continue to be as much as possible a political history, a social history, a cultural history. Time must continue. The music must go on. So that would be impossible to combine with the view that he wants the whole thing to come to a, a screeching halt. Yeah, I just thought it was important to go ahead and clarify that because I think taking out of that context, which is, to be fair, a pretty complicated context, uh, that, that Absolutely. paragraph can be pretty alarming. So I think, I think it was worth taking the time to clarify that. Yeah, the risk here would be neither to blow the alarm out of proportion, nor to go and defuse the bomb completely. Yeah. Because it is very important for Dugan that the philosophical and the political are, they coalesce. So the war of ideas also may mean a war of armies, but it just doesn't mean global nuclear holocaust. Right. All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and wrap it up here. Where can everyone find all of your great work? So I have a few different places online. If you go to, for example, michaelmillerman.com or duganbook.com, you'll see some books that I've written, including one on Dugan. I have an online school, millermanschool.com, where I teach Dugan, Strauss, Heidegger, and other figures that we've discussed and uh, that I think people will really enjoy learning about. And you can always just search me up on YouTube where I have a channel and I've done many interviews on Dugan, Heidegger, and these figures. So a lot of different materials, some free, some paid, some books, articles, essays, interviews, and I hope people find it useful. My main social media is uh, Twitter, M underscore Millerman. Follow me and uh, let me know what you think about all of this. Excellent. All right, guys. So make sure that you're checking out all of Michael Millerman's work. And of course, if this is your first time here, make sure that you go ahead and subscribe to the channel. And if you'd like to get these broadcasts as podcasts, you can, of course, go ahead and check out the Oren McIntyre show on all your favorite podcast platforms. If you do, make sure you go ahead and leave that rating or review. Thanks for watching, guys. And always, we'll talk to you next time.